Lord, I pray now for, for this time as we open up your word. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. You helped me this week. I was stuck big time, not knowing where to go with this passage and what the point was, but thank you for helping me. And I, I pray, Lord, would you bring the power of your Holy Spirit upon all of us this morning and that we would be deeply impacted by this amazing passage this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Well, let's turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. If you're wondering why Hebrews 11, we're going to end up back at Hebrews chapter 9. But we're going to start in Hebrews 11 to kind of set the stage. So raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. I want to bring one to you. I want you all to have a Bible. You can open up and look on with us as we study through this passage verse by verse. But we're going to start in Hebrews 11, which is on page 1008 in the Bibles that we passed out. So in Hebrews 11, we read about a lot of men and women of faith, but I want to focus on Moses. We read about Moses in verses 24 through 26. And I want you to imagine that you are or were Moses, okay? Moses was born uh, as an Israelite in the land of Egypt, which meant that you were a slave, meant that you faced terrible poverty, meant that you faced a life of suffering, Okay, so this is who you were. Now, Pharaoh decreed then that all the Israelite baby boys would be killed. And so your mother hid you in the what? The bulrushes, right? Remember the Sunday school story? Your mother hid you in the bushes by by the Nile River. And Pharaoh's daughter found you hidden there and adopted you into Pharaoh's household. And so you were raised as one of Pharaoh's kids in Egypt. Moses, that's who you were, that's your setting. And then you grew up, and so there you are now. Instead of slavery with God's people, you've got freedom, right? Instead of suffering, you've got comforts. Instead of poverty, you have wealth, unimaginable, one of Pharaoh's kids. So what did Moses do? Look at verse 24, Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Okay, stop there. That's just stunning. Why would he do that? Why leave Pharaoh's household and join with God's people a life of slavery, suffering, and poverty? Why would he do that? Was it because he felt guilty? It's not what the passage says. Was it because, well, it's just the right thing to do? It's not what the passage says. Was it because, well, I'm, I'm supposed to? That is not what the passage says. Look at what the passage says about why. Verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ, that means suffering with Christ and his people, people of Israel, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. The reward. He was looking to the reward. That's why he did this. So this chapter, Hebrews 11, is all about how to live by faith. Hebrews is a perfect, or Moses is a perfect example that an essential part of living by faith is looking to and pursuing the reward. 
You can see that in verse 6, plain as day. Look at Hebrews 11:6. He says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So it's impossible to live by faith, according to this verse, unless you're looking to the reward, just like Moses did. It's a crucial part of living by faith, Christian life. So here's the question I want to raise this morning. What is the reward? What is it? And, uh, uh, not yet, not yet. Paul knows. Just can barely keep it from, I love it, man. This is busting out of you, huh? What is the reward? And how can we be so sure that we will receive it? What is it? How can we be sure we'll receive it? That's the question that the author of Hebrews answers in today's passage. So let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 9 and take a look at what he says. Now, just reviewing what we've covered in the first 14 verses of chapter 9, which was last Sunday, the author shows us that the only way we can be forgiven, remember, the only way we can have the weight of sin lift off of us and the pardoning, forgiving love of God come upon us, the only way that can happen is through trusting Jesus Death, life, death, resurrection, trusting his work on the cross. It's the only way our guilt will lift and God's pardoning love will come. And then look at the conclusion that the author draws from verses 1 through 14 and verse 15. He says, therefore, crucial word, he, speaking of Jesus, therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Okay, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Chapter 8, we talked about what that meant. The new covenant is where God writes his word on your heart, so your heart changes. You start to, you turn away from sin, you put your trust in Jesus, you're totally forgiven. That's the new covenant. Jesus brought us the new covenant, and why did he do that? Underline those two words, so that... In verse 15, why did he bring us the new covenant? It was so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's why he did it, and that's the reward right there. The promised eternal inheritance. You might want to underline those three words too. So what is that? What is the promised eternal inheritance? What is it? I want to know what it is. Jesus died so I could have this. The new covenant was so we could receive this. What is it? And we can unpack it a little bit with those three words right there. It's promised, first of all. God promised it to us. It's in the scriptures, promise after promise. He's promised it. It's eternal, secondly. So a hundred billion years in the future, you've just barely started to scratch the surface of the inheritance. Okay? So it's promised. It's eternal. And it's an inheritance, which means it's something of great value that you will receive in the future. Okay, that's, that's helpful, but what is it? Still, I don't know what it is. And all through the scriptures, there's verse after verse after verse that, that says the same thing. But I want to show you one verse in Hebrews itself. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, tells us what it is. Hebrews 12, verse 14, a couple pages to the right there. The author's talking about why we should pursue peace with people. Why we should pursue peace with people and why we should live in holiness before God. And here's what he says. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, I get this next line, without which no one will see the Lord. 
all through the Bible, that is the inheritance. Seeing the Lord. Uh, Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Okay? Uh, Paul says, Now we see through a mirror dimly. Then we will see what? Face to face. John in the book of Revelation just simply says, And they shall see God. So this is the inheritance, the reward. It's God himself. What you get out of salvation, what you get out of the new covenant, the reason Jesus saved you is so that you could get God. Seeing him, worshiping him, beholding him, face to face knowing him, he is the prize. God is. Now let me dig a little deeper in this. We like to... At least I like to kind of talk about it this way. It's, it makes sense to me. We're all wired. Every human being is wired to find our highest joy in beholding greatness. You've heard us talk about that before. Our highest joys aren't from, you know, food and sex and 49ers and, you know, accomplishment. Those can be good things, gifts from God, okay? But those aren't our highest joys. Our highest joys come from beholding greatness, like that's why people travel from all over the world to go to uh, Yosemite. We got some Yosemite fans here, I know. Okay, to see Vernal Falls, to see Half Dome, to see uh, that's just that amazing granite chunk of El Capitan. Okay, people come from all over the world to see these things because we're wired to find our greatest joys in seeing greatness. God is the infinitely greatest greatness so seeing god is our infinitely greatest joy seeing god i mean just i want you just to imagine seeing god just kind of maybe close your eyes and think what it would be like to see god with your own eyes face to face that is a being who is so powerful that when there was nothing in existence except father son and holy spirit he spoke a word and instantly a universe, millions, billions of light years. They still haven't found the, the, the edge of it, right? They're still it's, it's getting bigger and bigger as the telescopes get stronger and stronger. So imagine seeing a being with that power, seeing him. It'd be amazing. Imagine what it would be like to see a being uh, who has no beginning, who has always been. Okay, you've had a beginning. I've had a beginning. Everything in this room has had a beginning. Everything else that exists except for God has had a beginning. God is the only being who has no beginning. He's always been. And think of what it would be like to see this being who has always been. One more example. Think of what it would be like to see God's love, his, his compassion, his goodness, his care for us, his astonishing grace and mercy. Think of what it would mean to see God who is so loving that when, when you and when I were rebelling against him, turning our backs on him, running away from him, when we were deserving only judgment and punishment from him, what did he do? He sent his own son who he loves. He sent his own son who he loves and he punished 
his own son. Jesus was willing. Jesus' love is displayed in this too. But the father punished Jesus for your sin and for my sin as Jesus was in absolute agony on the cross. What would it be like to see this being, God, with such compassion, such mercy, such goodness, such love? And Half Dome, Vernal Falls, Little Capitan, pretty impressive. Nothing compared to what it will be like to see God, behold God, worship God. He is the prize. He is the inheritance. Now, what if at this point you're thinking, okay, uh, I'm hearing those words, but I'm just not feeling it. Uh, Interesting. Okay, could be. Not feeling it. Some of you, I'm sure, are, 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 that's what's going on in your heart. Why aren't you feeling it? There's one of two reasons. One reason is maybe you haven't yet been born again. Because when you are born again, that's what salvation is. That is when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you turn from whatever else you've been trusting, and you trust him. You come as you are, pleading for his mercy, looking to him, trusting him. The Holy Spirit is changing your heart, and you are being born again. And part of what the Holy Spirit does is he gives you a taste it's like heaven is the banquet, and he gives you a sampler plate. Okay? Here. Taste what it is to see, behold God. We're not talking about physical seeing. We're talking about seeing, feeling with the eyes of your heart. And so when you're born again, you will taste, see what it means to know God, worship God, behold God. And that, that little taste is just an appetizer of the full banquet, but that little taste will satisfy you infinitely more than anything else this world has to offer. And you will be hooked from that point on. Yes! Oh, if I could have you! You're worth everything! So one reason you may not be feeling it is because you're not born again yet. And the second reason you may not be feeling it, you, you are born again. But how long has it been since you've really pressed in to meet the Lord in prayer and in the word? And he said, show me your glory. Let me see you. Let me feel you today. We don't live on the basis of feelings, but God wants us to press in to feel the wonder of who he is. So how long has that been? Because if it's been a long time, then you're just like, I have a vague remembrance of what happened when I was saved. But boy, it's been a long time. I'm hardly feeling it. But see, here's the good news. Turn to Jesus Christ as you are right now. Turn to him, look to him, say, help me, show me your glory, forgive me anew, pour out your spirit upon me afresh. He will give you times when you taste and see the goodness of the Lord. You'll taste, you can taste the reward now. You can taste the prize now. So here's the question that you've tasted It's beautiful. I love you, God. I love beholding you. I love worshiping you. How can you be sure that that reward's going to be yours out there? How can you be sure? You've had the sampler plate. How can you be sure the full banquet is going to be there for you? The reason you got to ask that question is because we all know that we've sinned. You've sinned this morning. I've sinned this morning. We've sinned. In ourselves, we don't deserve his reward. We deserve his judgment. We don't deserve the inheritance. We deserve to be punished in ourselves. So how can we be sure that the inheritance is going to be ours? The author tells us in verses 15 through 28 of chapter 9, 
He gives us five reasons, five reasons you can be certain that this inheritance, this reward is going to be yours. So how can we be certain we will receive this inheritance? Five reasons. Let me go through them and I'm going to draw some application. First reason is because Jesus' death redeems you from your transgressions. That's the first reason. Look at verse 15. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. There it is. Since, now here's why we can be certain, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now he's been talking in the verses before this about those who lived in the Old Testament under the first covenant. That's why he specifies the first covenant here. And notice what he says. How were the old covenant people's sins forgiven? It's through Jesus. Did you see that? A death has occurred that redeems them, the Old Testament believers, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus' death retroactively pays for Abraham's sins, Moses' sins, Ruth's sins, Hannah's sins, David's sins, retroactively. Jesus' death. The animal sacrifices didn't pay for those sins. We talked about that last week. The animal sacrifices said there needs to be a sacrifice, but these aren't doing it. Jesus did it. So his death retroactively paid for all their sins. And the implication of the passage is that if his death retroactively paid for their sins, his death pays for our sins as well. So because of Jesus' death, he has redeemed you from your transgressions. Redeemed. What does that word mean? I grew up, we had blue chip stamps. Anybody else that old? Okay. All right. Just a few of us here. And you'd, you'd, kind of sounds crazy now, doesn't it? You go to a grocery store, you get these stamps, you put them into books, and then you would, you'd lick them and your tongue would get all yuck, you know, but then, then you would take them to, and you'd get the, you'd redeem them. You'd turn it in and you'd get something else. You'd, you'd redeem them for some, for something. So because you've sinned, because I've sinned, we owe punishment. We deserve to be punished. And Jesus redeemed us from that by paying the debt that we deserve for all of our sins. So because Jesus has paid the debt for all of your sins, you can be certain that the eternal promised inheritance is yours. Now, quiz time. How many of your transgressions did Jesus pay the penalty for? All of them. So here's the good news. As you know, you can be absolutely certain of the eternal promised inheritance. It's coming. Oh, man. There's the first reason. Second reason. Because Jesus' death activated the new covenant. He gives an illustration of like a last will and testament as an illustration of the covenant. So if someone writes a, a will, okay, what you're going to leave all your stuff to, okay, that doesn't happen until, until what? You die, okay? That, that isn't activated. That, that covenant, that last will and testament isn't activated until you die. Once you die, the will goes into effect, right? In the same way, Jesus' death activated the new covenant. Look at verses 16 and 17. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So imagine the new covenant was here, written up in, in, in the scriptures, but imagine that it wasn't activated yet. You know what that would mean? That would mean that God 
has not written his word on your heart. So your heart hasn't been changed. You're still running away from him. And that would mean that your sins haven't been forgiven because you haven't turned to put your trust in Jesus Christ. So you need the new covenant activated. You need this to go to work. You need this to happen. And just like a will isn't activated unless the one who wrote it dies, so the new covenant isn't activated unless the one who made it dies. Jesus has died. The new covenant is activated. God's written his word on your heart. Your heart has been changed. You've repented of your sins. You've put your trust in Jesus. You've been forgiven. So because the new covenant is activated, because God's done that, you can be absolutely certain you will receive the promised eternal inheritance. Do you get that? Second reason. Are you getting convinced yet? Okay. Yes? All right. Let's go to the third one. It's because Jesus fulfills the old covenant picture of how sin must be purified through shed blood. Verses 18 through 23. Look at what the author says. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. Probably water, scarlet wool and hyssop, that describes how they sprinkled the blood. They would take hyssop, which was a a plant. They would clump the stems together, probably wrap scarlet wool around it. They would water down the blood with, with water so that it could sprinkle more easily. So he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Sprinkle, 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 okay? Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant shows us Forgiveness of sins requires a death. Those animal sacrifices didn't provide the death that was needed, but they pointed to the fact that a death is needed. A perfect death is needed. And then read verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things. Remember what that's referring to? The tent of meeting the animal sacrifices, the Old Testament altar, the Old Testament priesthood, all those are copies of the reality of what's really needed in heaven. Those aren't the reality. Those are copies of the reality. So it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, the sprinkling of the blood of calves and goats. But the heavenly things themselves, it was necessary for them to be purified with better sacrifices than these. Now, it's a little troubling, that last phrase. The heavenly things themselves needed to be purified. Why? Sounds puzzling, right? Why would the heavenly things need to be purified? And the best answer that I saw as I was studying this, it's because when Christ stands before God the Father, representing us, he's bringing us with him, right, before the Father, and we've sinned. And so we could bring defilement to heaven because of our sin unless we've been purified by Jesus' blood. Okay, so think of it like this. Jesus is, is, is coming before the Father. He's representing you. He's bringing you with him. And you can only stand before God if you are clothed in spotless white, 
like dazzling, spotless, shiny white. But because of our sin, none of us are spotless white. There's filthy, there's dirty, there's muddy, it's a mess. And so when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as your treasure, at that instant, you are cleansed. And you are whiter than snow at that point. And so you can be there, and your sin is cleansed, and so you're not going to be defiling anything in heaven because you've been cleansed through trusting Jesus. And so the point is, because of Jesus' shed blood, which the Old Testament shows was necessary, because of Jesus' shed blood, you will be completely spotless as you stand before God through Jesus Christ. And so that's why you can be absolutely certain that you will receive the eternal promised inheritance. Okay, three reasons. Fourth reason. It's because Jesus fulfills the old covenant picture of how we can only come to God through a perfect priest. We've talked about this a couple, I mean, numerous times as we've been going through Hebrews. Let me just re- review it again. God put Israel in the center of the nations so that all the nations, so that the whole world could look at Israel's priesthood and sacrifices and Ten of meeting and tabernacle. So the whole world could look and and learn what we need in order to come to God. So, as we've described numerous times, when an Israelite would sin, remember Psalm 32, they would go to God and be forgiven. But but they also were supposed to come and bring an animal sacrifice. And they would come, bring a, a spotless lamb. The priest would say, put your hand on the lamb as a picture of your guilt being transferred onto this lamb. The priest would say, kill the lamb. You would kill the lamb as a picture of your guilt having been transferred and the lamb being punished in your place. Then the priest would take the lamb's body and blood and present it before God's altar as a sacrifice, picturing the sacrifice that needed to be paid for your sins. So the whole world was watching Israel do this thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times so that we would all understand we can't just like come to God on our own. Like, God, here I am. We can't do that. You need a priest. You need a priest of the perfect sacrifice because you've sinned. You can't just come to God on your own. You need a priest. And look at what verse 24 says. Jesus is the perfect priest with this perfect sacrifice. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. So it's not the Old Testament tent of meeting and tabernacle. But Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So he's the perfect priest by whom we can come to God. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared, this is a beautiful last line, once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Underline that, that, that sentence, and there's a feast of truth in that last sentence to strengthen and encourage us. First of all, it says Christ appeared once for all. We talked about this last week. Remember, once he paid for sins, and that once was for all, for all your sins, all your past sins. All your present sins, all your future sins, once for all, he paid for your sins. And he appeared once for all at the end of the ages 
What that means is that his death and resurrection brought to an end the age of unbelief and facing God's judgment, which we all were in. And for those who believe, his death ushered in a new age of the presence of God and of forgiveness. That's what's meant by that phrase, the end of the ages. And then that last phrase, Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I love just the simplicity of that phrase. He put away sin, all your sin, not those sins and those sins and those sins. He put away your sin. All that sin was put away by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. And that's why we can be sure that we will receive the eternal promised inheritance. So are you, are you hearing? It's like it's the same thing from this angle, 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 from this angle. One more angle. Fifth reason. It's because Christ frees us from judgment so we can eagerly await his return. Verse 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. If you stop there, that's a scary statement, right? It is appointed for you. It's appointed for me. We all are going to die. We are all going to die. Unless Jesus comes first, and then we head right into judgment. But every one of us die judgment. Okay? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So that's a scary statement in and of itself. If we stopped right there, none of us could be sure that we're going to receive the eternal promised inheritance. But keep reading. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Okay, so all the fear of standing before God and, and having him see sin that hasn't been judged, that still needs to be judged. Don't need to fear that. Because Jesus was having been offered once to bear the sins of many. He's paid for all those sins. And so he will appear a second time. First time was the cross and resurrection. Second time is at the end of history. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here's the question. If there's judgment in the future when Jesus returns, how can we eagerly wait for him? Feel that? If his return is going to mean judgment, how can you eagerly wait for that? Ah, no. Let's delay that, please, okay? How can we eagerly wait for that? It's because he bore the sins of many. All those who are trusting Christ, he bore their sins. And so when he comes back, he is going to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, here's a question we could, I'll just throw it out there. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus to come? This last week, Have you had times where you just thought, oh, Jesus, I love you. I want more of you. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Do you have times where you eagerly await Jesus' return? Stir that up. Stir that up. If If you see things accurately, you will eagerly await his return. So if there's judgment, how can we eagerly await him? It's because he's put away all of our sins. He's born the sins. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. And so that means that whether you die or whether he comes back, whichever comes first, you can be absolutely certain he's there to save. He will save all those who are eagerly await him. You are forgiven. 
you will see him face to face. You will worship him, see him, love him, and move into the the infinitely satisfying joy of knowing, beholding God in Christ forever. And so for that reason, you can be certain you're going to receive the promised eternal inheritance. Okay, now, any questions that have been raised up by these by these five reasons and where we've come so far before I move into some application? I want to make sure. Any any puzzlements like how does that work? Or I want to make sure we've get this. So if you got a question, be bold, feel free. Are you getting this? Are you seeing it? This is so powerful. You can be absolutely certain that you will receive the eternal promised inheritance. I mean, think of that. Think, think about your future. What do you think about when you think about your future? Oh, I got a work problem tomorrow, and then we've got you know this coming up, and I got to talk to this person, and and what are my kids going to do? Okay, and that's all there, and that's important, and God will help you with that powerfully. But do you realize that you've got this whole eternity thing coming up, right? Eternity in the presence of God. That's long. That's reality. That's the reward. That's the inheritance. You've got an inheritance. If you had an uncle who called you up and said, uh, I've left you $10 billion effective in two years, you think you'd think about that over these next two years? Just a little bit, right? See how that works? So this is our internal promised inheritance at ours. Okay, but I was going to ask for questions. I got distracted. So any questions? Okay, now here's the application I want you to think about. What does this mean for us? I want to encourage you to try something this week. Try stopping at different times during during the week and and saying to yourself, I am going to receive the promised eternal inheritance, which means forever I'm going to behold God in his glory and majesty and beauty. Something like that. Just stop at various times of your week and, and just preach this to yourself. Steve, you're going to receive the promised eternal inheritance forever. You're going to have the joy of beholding God. And just see what happens. And then as we meet in our home groups, talk about what happened. How are you impacted? Let me throw out a couple of scenarios that I thought of. Let's say you face a big old problem at work. Anybody got a big problem you're facing as you head into work tomorrow, or maybe you're dealing with it this afternoon? Okay, big problem at work. What would happen to you if you stopped and reminded yourself you're going to receive the promised eternal inheritance? You're going to have the joy of beholding God in his glory forever. What would happen? Strengthen you? Give you perspective? Help you see the big picture? Fill you with faith, comfort you. Okay? Do that when you're facing a problem. Preach that to yourself and see what happens. Another scenario. Let's say that you're tempted to, to gossip. Okay? Gossip is just can be so subtle and so deadly, and it can it can harm the body of Christ and harm families. And so next time you're tempted to gossip, stop and preach this to yourself. You are going to receive the eternal promised inheritance. Where forever you will have the joy, the heart-filling joy of beholding God. And if you will preach that to yourself and ponder that, I promise you, your heart will change. You will not want to slander someone. You will not want to gossip. You'll want to do all you can to strengthen them in in seeing who Jesus is. That's what you'll want. That's what will happen in your heart. It will have that effect on you. Try that.
Another scenario. Let's say you're a friend to let's say you're afraid, excuse me, afraid to invite a friend to our Easter service. Okay? Just talked about it. Here's the invitation. Uh, I don't know. Try this. See what happens. Preach to yourself. I'm going to receive the eternal promised inheritance. I'm going to see God in all of his glory and beauty. Be filled with the joy of worshiping him forever. Can you feel a little bit right now what's going to happen? You may still feel a little nervous, but, but there will be faith rising. There will be confidence rising. There will be, so, so what if they think I'm strange? I've got that coming, the reward, worth it all, right? So just like go hog wild in this stuff. Look what's coming. Be freed up by that. And one, one other example, one other scenario, one last one. Some of you are facing really severe trials, just heartbreaking trials, difficulties, relational, health, financial, employment. You're just facing massive, massive trials. Who shared this morning many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all? What was the reference for that? Do you have that off the top of your head? Okay, anyway, it's in the Psalms. I know it. it's. Pardon? Psalms, thank you. Okay. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So if you are going through afflictions right now, that doesn't mean like, you know, you're not part of what we are here. We're trying to be righteous and many of the afflictions of the righteous. Okay, so welcome. All right. But what would happen, or even just like do this right now, you're facing this, this big trial and you preach to yourself, I'm going through this big trial, but I am going to receive the eternal promised inheritance. I'm going to stand before God the Father, Jesus the Son, face to face and see love and glory and royalty and majesty and beauty and power and wisdom and authority. And I'm going to worship this awesome God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm going to be filled with joy in seeing God. That's my eternal promised inheritance. That's my reward. It's going to be there. It'll give you hope. It'll strengthen you. It'll comfort you. It'll help you. So preach. This preaches really well. Preach this. Various times this next week, and then we'll meet in our home groups and let's talk about what happened. What did God do? All right? Let's stand together. I'm going to pray this over us. I want to pray first, Lord, for those here who uh, are hearing the idea of seeing you and its words, but they're not feeling it, not, not feeling the joy of it. Maybe, maybe they've never been saved, or maybe it's just been a long time since they've really pressed in to meet you. I pray that right now, Lord, you would help them. I pray that right now you would meet them. So just look to Jesus Christ right now. Come to him as you are. Ask him to help you. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to change you. Ask him to pour out your, his spirit upon you. Ask him. Ask him. As you press in, he will give you times where he pours his spirit out upon you. And you see with the eyes of your heart and you feel the glory of Jesus Christ. 
He wants you to have a, a sampler plate of the banquet that's going to be yours. If you've never put your trust in Christ, this is why God created you. This is why you're here. Nothing's going to satisfy you until you tap into this. This is why you're here. So do that this morning. We'd love to pray for you before you leave. And if you have been bored again, but it's been a long time, don't let it be a long time ever again. Start pressing in regularly to meet the Lord in his word, in prayer. Ask for him to pour his spirit out upon you. He will give you times where he powerfully satisfies your heart and himself. So I pray, Lord, that you would help those who aren't feeling that this morning. And I pray, Lord, for everyone here, that we would preach this to ourselves this week. Through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, by faith in him alone, I am going to receive the promised eternal inheritance of beholding your glory forever. Oh, Lord, and then encourage us with that. Strengthen us with that. Fill us with that. Satisfy us with that. Do a mighty work, I pray, Lord. Thank you for this passage. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death on the cross, paying for our sins. We love you, Lord. What a Savior you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.